Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series this week in the book of Luke, a series called A Firm Grip on the Gospel. So turn in your Bibles to Luke 4, 1 to 15, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Temptation of Jesus. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they were tempted by the devil, they succumbed. I mean, there was something the devil said to them that they found difficult to resist. God knows, said Satan, when you eat this fruit, you will be like God and to be gods in their own right, no longer to have to bend the knee and obey and worship the creator. That was alluring to be gods, lords of their environment, lords of their lives and their future, lords of all of creation. Just think of the endless possibilities of what they might accomplish and what they might experience. And that thought was intoxicating. And so with the belief that they could be gods, they ate and separated their relationship from their creator. Of course, Adam could not imagine the horror that he had unleashed for the human race. At first, it was a matter of that he and Eve for the first time realized they were naked and that being naked, they were more vulnerable than they had imagined. And then they encounter the real God and realize they're terrified. And then pain and childbearing and the danger of bringing the next generation into the world. Then the ground, oh, the ground where once it was harvest and plenty is now yielding thorns and thistles. The harvest will not come easily. And then there's the relationship between the man and the woman. That's now strained. And their oldest son murders his brother. And what was so wildly alluring now becomes a burden, a burden that will continue until both Adam and Eve in weariness return to the dust of the ground from which they were taken. But Luke and Matthew tells the story of Jesus' temptation. And it's a temptation that in many ways mirrors the story of Adam. But before we end there, let's begin where Luke does. Luke 4, 1 to 2. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So Luke begins his recounting of the temptation of Jesus to have occurred immediately after his baptism. And at that place, the voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, proclaims Jesus to be the beloved Son. And furthermore, the Holy Spirit has descended on him, indicating that he is empowered by the Spirit for the ministry that lies ahead of him. But before he began, he's led by the Spirit, not to Jerusalem, the center of Israel, nor to Galilee, where his public ministry will begin, but instead, he's led from the Jordan to go to the wilderness. Now, this in itself would not be surprising because a great many of the older prophets spent time in the wilderness. And indeed, Luke tells us that he's there for 40 days. Now, any Bible reader was going to wonder about that number, and that's because that number comes up so frequently. Noah was told the earth would be inundated by water for 40 days. Israel's in the wilderness 40 years, or we might think of Moses on Mount Sinai 40 days, in which according to Exodus 34 verse 28, that he was there and ate neither bread nor drank water. Goliath, in the time of David, taunted Israel for 40 days before David delivered them. Or we might think of Elijah fleeing from Jezebel. It's in 1 Kings 19, when according to verse 8, after he had eaten, he went in the strength of that food for the next 40 days and nights until he came to Mount Sinai. 
Ezekiel the prophet was instructed to lay on his right side for 40 days. Three kings of Israel reigned for 40 years. God gave Nineveh 40 days to repent. And once, you know, we get past this story in the temptation right here, and we go to the end of the story. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he remained on earth for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. See, the point that I'm making is that there's definitely a pattern in Scripture. Forty days, on the one hand, is just about the limit the human body can go without doing permanent harm without food. So there is that when we consider the fasting of Jesus. He's clearly at the limit. But the number 40, since it comes up so frequently, calls us to wonder about the significance of that number. The number seems to indicate a time of testing, trial, or probation. Here, both in Luke and in Matthew, it indicates a full number of days where Jesus would have been tempted thoroughly, completely. That is, the devil was given freedom to probe him for any weakness at all. Now, I want to point out the difference between Matthew and Luke's account. According to Matthew, after the 40 days were complete, it was then that the tempter came to him. Now, in Luke, at least that's how I read the grammar of the passage in Luke, Verse 2 indicates that for 40 days, he was being tempted. And that would mean that the temptation continued all of those 40 days. I don't think there's a contradiction here, because Luke tells us that at the end of the 40 days when he was hungry, and when should he not eat, lest he damage himself, then the temptation was ratcheted up to the maximum. I think that's Luke's intention. And I have in the past argued that Jesus would have been doing several activities while he's in the desert. The Old Testament commanded that all the kings were to write out a copy of the book of Deuteronomy as their own personal copy so that they would have it with them whenever they reigned, as well as memorize portions of it. And since Jesus was the king of kings, I have thought that it's quite likely that's what he did. After all, all scripture that he quotes is from Deuteronomy in this temptation. So I'm assuming he's memorizing and meditating and writing out the book of Deuteronomy. But that doesn't preclude temptation hounding him all along the way. And at the end, when he had been praying and meditating and being tempted, there comes that moment when the temptations reach their zenith. But before we look at the three temptations, let's remember that just 40 days earlier, Jesus had heard the words from God that he was indeed God's own son and that God was well pleased with him. And from my reading of these temptations, it seems to me that the devil was going to use that event to subvert Jesus. So let's look at the three temptations. Luke chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So at first glance, that doesn't seem like an enticement to do evil. I mean, what could be evil about eating? And more so, it was in Jesus' power to command nature. I mean, later on, he would walk on water and he would command the wind and the waves and they would obey. He would command the dead to come alive. I mean, his power over nature is demonstrated on many occasions, and on each of those occasions, he doesn't sin. So if that's the case, how is it a sin to command nature on this occasion? It harms no one, it doesn't violate the law of God, and it certainly would not have been seen by anyone else to even create a difficulty for him. In short, what was being suggested here does seem benign, or is it? See, let's do a little theology lesson. There's been a heresy. It's a false teaching about the incarnation or what it means for Jesus to have become a man. 
This heresy is called the kenosis theory. And in that theory, Jesus emptied himself of his deity when he became a man. That is, he left his deity, his divine nature behind. And that's a heresy because it denies Jesus' true nature. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And as God, he's eternal. He never stops being God. And so when we say that he laid aside his glory to become a man, we don't mean he stopped being altogether the glorious God. We do mean, however, that he would not use his power as God as a personal advantage to himself, but rather by becoming a man, he made himself nothing and took upon himself the form of a servant. He would later say, that he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so, yeah, he would walk on water and calm the storm and raise the dead, but not for himself or his benefit, but for the benefit of those he had come to serve. But here in this temptation now, at this point when Jesus is hungry, where after a lengthy period of fasting, the hunger signals in his body are telling him that eating is now a matter of survival. It's right here that the devil says, now that you're vulnerable and in need, violate your commitment to lay aside your power to serve yourself. Violate that commitment just once. Now, how many of us know that it's in the little things that we often portray our commitment to keep the big things? It's just a small thing. It won't matter, we say. We'll cheat this once, but we'll be faithful in everything else. And so the line goes, And so often, many a principled man or woman has lost their virtue. And notice Jesus' response. It's instantaneous. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 states that a man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that is appropriate here. You'll live by the word of God. That's your life. As important as eating would have been, it's far more important, says Jesus, to sustain yourself by the word. Satisfying my physical needs is not ultimate, it's penultimate. If I must choose, says Jesus, by surviving as opposed to keeping the commands of God, I've already made my choice. I'll submit to the Father. Now we'll come to the second and the third temptations, and we'll see how those temptations now reach their climax, and that Jesus is able to remain faithful. God sees every day that is to come. More so, he steers time and space towards his purposes. Not only are our times in his hands, but his hand touches everything and everyone. That's the theme of Dr. John Neufeld's new book. Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to present In All Things, God's Providence. In this 190-page text, Dr. John teaches the providence of God. His book traces the thread of God's constant engagement with creation. Rather than a dry doctrine, Dr. John demonstrates how God's providence is the hope, comfort, and confidence for us all. So, for this month only, we want to make In All Things available at an exclusive feature price of only $5. Or if you prefer ebooks, you'll be able to download the digital copy for free at backtothebible.ca. To purchase your copy today, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1 800 663 
I'm reading Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, this temptation has been the point of a great many discussions. Is it really true that the authority of the nations belongs to Satan? Does Satan really rule this earth? Now, look, we all know that just because Satan said so, that doesn't make it true. As Jesus would say later, when Satan lies, he speaks his own native language. Also, just so that we answer the critic, we know that there is no place on earth where you can actually stand and see the kingdoms on earth. Let's admit, we don't know how the temptation was accomplished. It was most likely a vision in which the devil showed Jesus the nations their power as well as their best accomplishments, and he announces to Jesus, all these things belong to me. Well, do they? You know, some Christians talk as if they do. They quote 1 John 5 verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, that passage says. Or we might look at Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, in Ephesians, following the course of this world is equated to following the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. So does that prove that Satan really does own the nations? I think not, and here's why. We know that Satan exercises great power over the nations, that he subverts them regularly, and at many times he entices them to do more evil than they would do on their own. That is what Scripture teaches. But the Bible also teaches that God has not relinquished his ownership of everything. Psalm 22, verse 28, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 47, 7 to 8, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Indeed, this is the lesson Israel learned when they were in the Babylonian captivity in the time of Daniel. Yeah, Babylon was a pagan nation given over to the gods that were evil and inspired by demons. But God reduced Nebuchadnezzar to madness at his will, so that even that pagan king would confess, and here I'm quoting Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So, Let's get back to Satan's words to Jesus. I have authority over all these nations. I can give that authority to whomever I will. And I can deliver it to you, Jesus, if you will but worship me. You see, that's a lie. Satan's overplaying his hand. Yeah, Satan does have considerable influence on the nations, but that's only influence. God's sovereign power allows him to have the amount of influence he has. And if I might, that tells us a great deal about Satan. He lies, he exaggerates, he seduces us with dreams of what he might deliver to us, when in fact he can't deliver any dream that he offers, and furthermore, he may decide not to deliver even if he could. All his attractive packages of greatness or influence, of being able to make our mark, all that's in illusion. 
He can only do what God permits him to do. And yet Jesus in his humanity is now weary. And he hears an offer that must have sounded so very similar to what Eve had heard. You will be like a God ruling the nations, receiving adoration and directing the courses of people. Notice how Jesus defeats this temptation. He does so in the very same fashion as he defeated the last one. He has, I think, been meditating on Deuteronomy, and now he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And notes in order here regarding this temptation. This is not a temptation to just bow to Satan on a one-time basis. You see, worship is life-consuming. It adores, it finds the object of worship, the object of our desire and our delight. To worship is to express the object of our worship to be our highest joy. See, we live in a world filled with worship. Every human being worships. I mean, we might worship philosophy or a created object or some object in the heavens or idols or even Satan himself. Or we can worship the one who alone is worthy of adoration and joy, the only God. And that for Jesus is the issue. Not whether Satan's deceiving him or lying or offering something he can't give. The issue is where Jesus will find joy and where his affections will be found. It is whom he will worship. It should be our issue as well, for there's nothing more important than this question. Will you worship God alone or will you have a competing desire to the only God? Well, the third temptation, Luke 4, 9 to 12. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, the pinnacle of the temple is the southeastern corner of the temple, where the walls of the temple end, and they go down a steep ravine, which is called the the Kidron Valley. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, said of that location, it was so high that it was dizzying to look down. And this temptation begins with a note of doubt. If, says Satan. Now, just 40 days ago, Jesus heard a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, not if you're my beloved son, you are my beloved son. Now Jesus hears another voice, are you really? And what certainty do you actually have? How do you know if you're the son of God? And since Jesus has been quoting scripture, turns out Satan can quote scripture as well. He quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 to 12, which is a promise of God's protection. The Psalm begins like this. He who dwells in the shelter of the most high will abide in the shadow of the almighty. So there it is, the promise that when you hide yourself in God, your confidence won't be misplaced. And then, of course, we come to verses 11 to 12, and we find out just how much God will do on behalf of those who hide themselves in him. God will put his angels to his command, and he will command the angels to do his bidding. And that brings us back to how Satan abuses such a wonderful promise. He's telling Jesus to find out if that promise is actually meant for him. And so the only way to find that out, if you're truly the object of the Father's delight, is to take a jump and find out if it's true. It's a temptation we all face. When God makes promises, is it not worth my while to test that, we ask? How do I know the scriptures are trustworthy, especially in my case? How do I know that they speak of me? And putting God to the test, which is a quotation from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, is about what happened at Massa. 
After Israel had seen the ten plagues that had devastated the Egyptians, the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of Egyptian army, having been guided by a cloud, having eaten manna fallen from heaven, they arrive at a place called Massa where there's no water, and they say, God probably wants to kill us over here. And to that we find an answer. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Yes, that's what Jesus says to Satan. I won't do it. I won't put God to the test. So Luke 4:13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And that's to say, this was not the last of Jesus' temptations. But as we know, at every point in time, he resisted temptation that was set out before him. And that brings us back to where we began today. At each point, Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Satan had told Eve, did God really say? And when Satan effectively suggested the same thing to Jesus, Jesus responded by saying, oh yes, God did in fact say this. He said it indeed. I have it chapter and verse and I will trust in him. When Satan said to Eve, you will be like God, he said to Jesus, I'll give you the nations. And Jesus, unlike Adam, said, My worship of the one and only true and living God, that will not be displaced by anything. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. Where the first Adam led us to ruin, the second one led us to forgiveness and eternal life. And it is this insight that teaches us of the significance of what happened to Jesus. His obedience is the foundation of a new race of humanity a humanity that abandons Adam's bad example and holds to Christ as the leader of our new race. John, thanks so much for your message. But tell me, how do we understand this story of Jesus' temptation relative to our own temptation we face every day? Yeah, I mean, first of all, we need to remember that Jesus was tempted even as we are, but he was without sin. Um, I've had it explained to me this way, Ben, um, that, uh, you know, one of the things that sinning does, it kind of lances the pressure of temptation. It's like the pressure is gone. I've given into it, and so it's all gone. But if you've ever tried to resist temptation, you're going to know that the pressure builds, and it built on Jesus all his life, and he never gave in once. I mean, this he did so that his track record, rather than ours, will count in the final day. That's the glory of what Jesus accomplished for us. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Luke, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Faith is never disappointed. Back to the Bible Canada can testify to the hand of God in and through this ministry. As one of our listeners reports, we want to be part of what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada, not just in Canada, but overseas. That's why we support. Beyond a doubt, God will accomplish His purposes. He chooses to employ His faithful people as His hands. As we begin a new year, may I ask you to consider a financial gift to support and sustain this ministry or perhaps even consider becoming a monthly partner at the beginning of 2024. Your generosity allows us to enter into this new year fully supplied for what the Lord has in store for His kingdom. 
To give a gift or become a monthly partner, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.